In the days and years after the conclusion of World War II and the defeat of Nazism, and with the specter of communism as a new global menace, the great powers celebrated a rare and important achievement, the creation of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Announced in Paris in December 1948, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights was meant to affirm and to protect what it described as the inherent dignity and equal and inalienable rights of all members of the human family. The Soviets, responsible for the extermination of a greater number of human lives than even the Nazis, of course never paid much attention to the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Wesley J. Smith joins us today to speak about how the communist Chinese appear to be following in the Soviets' footsteps, but on an even more dehumanizing and violent scale. But we can do something about it. I'm Tom Shakley, and this is Life, Liberty, and Law. I'm Tom Shakley, and this is Life, Liberty, and Law, and we're thrilled to be joined today for the first time in a while. It's been too long. Wesley J. Smith, welcome back to the program. Thank you very much, Tom. How are you doing? I'm doing great, and we've also got our own Noah Brandt here with us. Happy to be here, you know? Happy to speak to Wesley again. Noah! That's right. That's right, Wesley. (laughs) Every, you know, we've had some great guests on the show, and I love every single episode we've recorded, 40-plus episodes. But you know what? Everyone that doesn't have Wesley Smith, it's missing a little bit of that Wesley charm. Ah, the 20 bucks is in the mail. (laughs) (laughs) So, Wesley, we're here today to talk about some heavy stuff, um, but I think uh, it's it's heavy stuff uh, in service of of the truth and in service of actually a future-oriented perspective. What can we do about it? You wrote recently on the Fourth Reich, you called it, in The American Spectator. Um, Tell us about that. Yeah, I... uh have really become very, very concerned about what's happening in China with regard to persecution based on religion. And the Chinese communists have, uh, starting with the Fulun Gong, moving to the Uyghurs, which are a Muslim uh, um, minority in Western China, and now Christians, are mounting a full-throated, full-force assault on religion in that country. And that's because they don't want any competition to loyalty to the Communist Party. And it is some of the most, it's not just persecution, it is Third Reich kind of activity in some cases, which is why I called the piece the Fourth Reich. Yeah, you've written about, uh, you know, China as the world champion at cancel culture, right? which is, uh, you know, a a lighthearted thing, sort of, um, in the sense that, you know, on social media in the West, cancel culture means essentially that we don't like you anymore. But you point out that in China, cancel culture means you are literally canceled, not just socially, but your life. Yeah, you are going to be either killed, you're going to be imprisoned, or you're going to be excommunicated from society so that society has to treat you like the biblical leper, unclean, unclean, don't come near me. And it's a it, and that's mainly happening to the Christians. Uh, the more traditional kind of jackboot persecution and killing, uh, which I think we should get into first, um, is happening to the Falun Gong, which is a uh, Eastern meditative type uh, discipline, and then the Uyghurs, who are uh, uh, both a um, 
a minority religion Muslim, and they're also a uh, ethnic group. And of course, the Uyghurs uh, were the subject of the the whole NBA kerfuffle um, in in recent months, where you had I think what one one guy a GM I forget which team spoke out for um, you know essentially the issue of Hong Kong's freedom, uh, and then that devolved into a whole series of of people standing up for the Uyghurs. You know, sort of what's happening to the Muslim minority in China. And, you know, the NBA is a big sport in China. And so there was a lot of tension, this sort of being held up as an example of how does the United States, how do Western nations that do business with and have to do business with China, given our current economic situation globally, how do we still respond and witness to the sort of human rights that, you know, we spoke about in terms of the, the Universal Declaration, the United Nations principles? And the problem is money talks. And uh, President Trump, for example has not spoken out forthrightly uh, on this persecution. In fact, was asked by Laura Ingram on her television show whether he would, and she said, well, he said basically, well, you know, we've got these trade deals, which I understand, and I don't, both. Uh, on the other hand, uh, President Trump has authorized his Secretary of State Pompeo and the, uh, uh, Secret or the Ambassador for Religious Liberty at the State Department, Sam Brownback, who many of your listeners uh, will know, uh, they have spoken out quite forthrightly and quite vocally on these issues. Uh, I've been writing lately to try to get President Trump to uh, say something. Um, he has just a little bit, but he, he has also stood up in the United Nations for religious freedom very profoundly. In a way, in fact, he, he, into, he you may recall that people were angry at him because at the same time there was a, mo a, a meeting on climate change, he attended a meeting on religious freedom and that I think he might have, that the United States might have organized uh, and spoke up in favor of religious freedom. Uh, so there is a, t a tension and, and, you know, there always are, is going to be a tension or are going to be tensions in public policy and foreign policy. But this is of such an egregious nature. This human rights abuses are so brutal and effective that I do think uh, people need to start speaking out against it. And and the and the good thing, the good news is, while we are dependent on China financially, they are dependent on us as well. That's right. And so I think speaking about it and figuring out what can be done is critical. You know, you quote Nina Shea, the director for religious freedom at the Hudson Institute. Yes in your Fourth Reich piece. And, and Nina makes the point that the ultimate goal of the Chinese uh, with this program of, of canceling uh, is the eradication of religion. In other words, wh whether it's uh, the, the Uyghurs, the Falun Gong, or Christians, Catholics, what have you, there's a view, the same way I think that was true in the Soviet Union and, and other repressive regimes, that religion represents an alternate power center, even when it doesn't intend to be particularly among atheists and materialists uh, who distrust that whole kind of uh, metaphysical uh, uh, view of life. But certainly with the Chinese, uh, they do not want a competing loyalty. And uh, religion has the power to actually uh, move people uh, and uh, strengthen them to stand up for things that the government might oppose. I wonder, Wesley, if you can help me understand the People's Republic of China Communist China has been around since more or less the end of World War II, right? When they 49, they took over. There you go. They took the mainland and they're in control. And it starts out with Chairman Mao, who is pretty, you know, a pretty doctrinaire communist. 
pretty. Yeah, yeah. As as you could, the. you could you could say that. And and it, you know, at least to my understanding, it's like it seems like most religion was kind of just like not allowed in almost any sense. Well, communism uh, is atheistic, right? And certainly, for example, in the Soviet Union, you saw hundreds of thousands, literally, of Orth- Eastern Orthodox, Russian Orthodox priests killed mm. by the regime in an attempt to stomp out the Eastern or uh, Russian Orthodox Church because that would be a competing power center. They killed the Tsar, and the Tsar, uh, they, they call it Holy Russia, and the Tsar had actually a very close relationship with the church. And so once they got rid of the royal family, then they started persecuting the church because they didn't want any competing center for people's loyalty. Now, during World War II, because they had a more immediate existential threat to the regime, they let up on the church, and everybody kind of went to defend Mother Russia against the German invasion. Uh, And it never went back to that kind of brutality again in the sense of uh, gulags, concentration camps, murders, uh, re-education camps. But that's exactly what China is now doing. China, when when, uh, Mao took over in 49, uh, they've had some very wrenching experiences. The Cultural Revolution is an example where where Mao went after the intellectual classes because they were competing power centers, the, the idea of academic freedom and so forth. And I think in the Cultural Revolution, tens of millions of people were killed. Mm. And, and the, the famine that followed, the Great Leap Forward, right? Yeah, it was a Great Leap Forward. It <laughs> sure was. But a so, branding exercise. So, so you actually see in these um, countries uh, of communism, atheism, and so forth, where there's no regard for the sanctity of human life because all we are is carbon molecules, right? right. So what difference does it make? And everything is power and uh, and uh, whether one uh, has an ideology. I mean, it's it, let's face it, it's an ideology. So now in China, like you saw in Germany, which crushed not only Jews, which who were scapegoats, but they were going after Catholics, and others as well. I mean, there were a lot of Catholic martyrs. Uh, St. Colby is an example who was... Yeah, Maximilian Colby. Maximilian Colby was in Auschwitz, um, and uh, he sacrificed his life for a fellow who was going to be put in a starvation cell. Now, it's interesting. I've been to Auschwitz, and it's an awful experience, but they were showing us the starvation cells, and you're just completely disheartened and then you walk into one and there are votive candles and this is where saint Colb, uh maximilian colby died and and it's like oh my gosh even here you couldn't keep christ out <laughs> i mean it's it's it really is astonishing to think but that kind of brutality uh is happening in china the falun gong let's start there in the 90s, the Falun Gong kind of took off in China. They, as I said, they, they do Tai Chi-type exercises. They have meditation, this kind of thing. It's Very a, threatening, yeah. Yeah, exactly. The kind of stuff that would really cause them to mount the attack the Forbidden City in Tiananmen Square and all that. Well, in the, of course, they'd already had Tiananmen Square uh, when this occurred, but they wanted the uh, Falun Gong to kind of tow what the Chinese communists wanted them to, and they said, no, we're not going to do that which is why they don't like religion. The smallest no is a threat. That's correct. Very well put. And uh, so they started uh, 
arresting them, political persecution, but then they added something known as organ harvesting. So the Falun Gong became the sources of organs in the black market in China, where people can go to China if they have $100,000 and get a liver within a month. And what happens is, and there have been outside reports, this isn't just hearsay, I mean, there have been really authoritative studies that took a long time to look at this, talk to witnesses, talk to Falun Gong relatives and so forth, where a Falun Gong who is the right, excuse me, sorry, a Falun Gong who is the right tissue type will be murdered and that liver given to the person paying $100,000. That's as brutal as it gets. Mm. You cite this in your piece, David Kilgore, uh, former Canadian member of parliament, human rights attorney, uh, David Mattis, produced a report in 2006, a report into allegations of organ harvesting of Falun Gong practitioners in China. It's incredible when you see this, some of their findings, they say that there were about 10,000 more transplants per year, and this is 15 some years ago or more at this point, 10,000 more transplants per year than identifiable sources for the organs procured. And then they cover the, from 2000 to 2005, uh, the time when the persecution of the Falun Gong commenced, there was an increase of 41,500 some transplants compared to the previous six year period. Where do the organs come from, they ask? Phil and Gung. Absolutely. And uh, there has been um, testimony from uh, family members who, when they retrie- retrieve their loved one's body, that the body had been stripped. Uh, there, a doctor testified that he used to take their corneas um, while they were under anesthesia, and none of those people made it out alive. This is, to, to put it in to context, you know, we look at the brutality, similar things, right? Things like harvesting of corneas that occurred in Nazi Germany. Right. Well, they, they we would say, do this medical, is in the past. they would do medical experiments and that kind of thing. And who's to say they're not doing that? We don't know because realize Kilgore and Mattis were able to, uh, in very painstaking way, create this very powerful, we'll say circumstantial case because they weren't able to observe it. But very powerful case that this is occurring. Uh, the, and the Chinese uh, said, oh, we're going to outlaw, or we're not doing it, but we're going to outlaw it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Which is, by the way, even a step better than the Born Alive Infant Protection Act yeah. in the U.S., where we say we're not doing it and we're not going to outlaw yeah. it, which is worse, actually. This is not happening. We don't need the protections. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, but that didn't change anything. And subsequent studies have shown that that has continued. Now, after the Falun Gong, the Uyghurs came under persecution. And this is uh, because they are in an isolated area in the west part of the country. You know, China's as big as the United States is in terms of territory, the uh, continental United States. So the Falun Gong would be living like in California as opposed to here where I'm taping in Washington, D.C. It's a long way away. It's also in the middle of nowhere in terms of Western views because it's uh, it's very difficult to yeah. get to. Uh, and uh, But we know because of satellite photos and so forth and reports that uh, hundreds of thousands, perhaps uh, more than a million or even two million uh, Uyghurs have been put into these concentration camps. Their children have been taken from them, and they've been uh, stripped from being able to teach their religion. They've been subjected to uh, forced labor, re-education, murder, torture. 
Uh, the very kinds of things you would see, it's not technically a death camp like Auschwitz where they send you there to gas you to death, but it's, it's very much like, uh, we'll say, Dachau, which was a forced labor camp where they don't care if you do well at all. Uh, and it is literally the Third Reich kind of, and gulag, Soviet gulag kind of behavior toward a minority group uh, maybe 11 million Uyghurs in the whole country realize that sounds like, oh, that's a lot of people. China has 1.2 billion people. So it's a very small minority. And they're, they're, they're basically low, focused in one spot. And uh, because they want to, and then the, you'd think that Muslim countries would be in uproar, but they're not. And that just shows you the power of money. The power that China has accumulated over years to uh, affect economic benefit, and we are all, and we have the same issue. I mean, the the NBA you mentioned earlier. Well, you know, one of the big NBA stars came to the defense of China. For heaven's sake, the same people who would cancel uh, boycott going to South Carolina because they passed a law saying that biological males must use the men's room. The hue and cry over that because supposedly it would lead to discrimination. Yet here we have murder, rape, torture, organ harvesting. And, well, we can't interfere with our relationship with China. This is we see in some of the NBA games, you know, protesters simply would stand up holding signs saying things like Google Uyghurs, right? Find out what this is. And when the camera would pan to that, the game would be blacked out in China. Yep, yep. Uh, And, I mean... China has a lot of issues in terms of despotism. Let's talk now what they're doing to Christians. This is uh, perhaps the most insidious, in some ways, uh, maybe insidious wouldn't be the right term, the most effective form of suppression uh, ever invented by tyrants. It's called the social credit system. And China is using high-tech, often supplied by U.S. companies, things like facial recognition, artificial intelligence, um, algorithms, computer algorithms, and so forth. Cameras, tracking. Exactly. To give people a social credit score. And one of the ways you can have social credit demerits is to be religious, to go to church. So what they've done is they've taken the unapproved churches. Remember, China had approved churches and unapproved churches. For a long time, they kind of tolerated the unapproved churches. Well, that's ended. Can, can you explain what the approved churches sort of were, or were they affiliated with these sort of, you know? Well, they were controlled churches? by the no. Well, they were controlled by the Communist Party. It's like what the uh, Russian communists did. The Eastern Orthodox Church technically never ceased to exist, but the bishops were all KGB agents and this kind of thing. So they would know how to put on the vestments, and they could chant the rituals. But they were KGB agents, loyal to the state instead of loyal to the faith. And by design, then you have people in place who can identify and right. remove and That's exterminate right. anyone who is, uh, let's say, legitimate believer in that That's faith. correct. W- would the things that these approved churches say, if you or I were just to go in them one day, would they seem familiar to us, you think? Well, I think uh, to a certain degree, but what I am, what Nina Shea told me, uh, and she's very uh, expert in this field, she's been covering it for years and years, is that they are now uh, editing uh, the hymns, they are editing. I've, I read a story, not from her, but I read a story. They're editing the Bible, uh, and they're making uh, these approved churches 
actually tow Communist Party um, um, tropes and memes, if you will. Um, and the unapproved churches are being destroyed and the, the parishioners scattered. Even in the approved churches, when people come, they have their picture taken, they have their fingerprints taken, and they're, so you know the communists are saying, okay, these people are religious believers. They're Christians. And you go to church now, and the, the thing is, uh, is, is getting up and running, but when it's going to be, when it's in full effect, say 2021, 20, maybe a little later, who knows, if you go to church, you're going to get uh, social credit demerits. If you talk to somebody who has a low social credit score, you yourself get social credit demerits. What happens if you have a high credit score, meaning you do all the things they want you to do? You might get a cut on the uh, cost of your rent. What happens if you get a low credit social credit score? You may not be able to rent an apartment. You may not be able to get medical care. You may not even be able to get on a local bus or a train. But not only that, your children are also subjected to the same punishments. So they may get kicked out of a university. They may not be able to attend good schools. They may not be able to get a job. So let's say you're a Christian and the communist, uh, uh, local communist leader says, you have to renounce your faith or we'll kill you. Well, Christianity has 2,000 years of dealing with that. And many faithful have said, okay, kill me. I'll sing a hymn as I go, and I'll have a smile on my face, and that's martyrdom, and, and you know the uh, church is fed by the blood of martyrs and so forth. Well, that's one thing. But what if the uh, party apparatchik comes to you and says, hey, renounce Christ or at least quit following Christ, or your children will not be able to go to school, or your children, will, when they are sick, will not be able to get a doctor, or your children will not even be able to ride the bus, and they will be in the streets. And guess what, pal? No one's going to know it because it's all in secret. That could possibly be much more effective because it's one thing to say, I will be a martyr for Christ. It might be another to say, I'm going to destroy my children's lives over this. And uh, particularly in China, which has a very strong familial bond uh, uh, in terms of, of their culture, so this is incredibly insidious stuff where people, depending on where they go because of all the cameras, the facial recognition, uh, the means of social control with that kind of high tech, I think, has the potential to be the most despotic and effective ever invented by the human race. And it's something that the United States, I think, needs to take a stand about. And some, you know, with this Chinese social credit system, a lot of it's sort of, at least when I'm thinking about it, theoretical, right? Like we don't really exactly know what like the capabilities of the Chinese government is to control their citizens. But I think it's become much more real these past few weeks, at least for me, because I've, you know, if you've been paying attention to the, all the sort of coronavirus updates, you know, the way that they're able to just be like this whole state with 300 million people entire province shut down. You can't leave. Every, there, you know, all the trains, all the buses, all the roads, there's men with machine guns who will stop you. And it's, you know, you can't, you, it's, and the you've power seen, is and enormous. And you've seen people uh, approached on the street and pulled into vans because they knew who they were because of facial recognition. It's incredible to think too, right, that in this sense, what the communist ideology of the 21st century is doing to the Chinese. And I, I want to make that point too, right? This is not, um, this is the, the Chinese themselves, in the same way the Russians were ultimately subjected to an ideology 
it wasn't the Russians, you know, that were the threat. It wasn't the Chinese now. It's not the Chinese now that are a threat. It's the ideology. Exactly. I right? mean, it's logic. And this is where when we say, you know, what is the power of any particular ideology? We say it's an incredible thing, actually, that we can make something like martyrdom, like being willing to die for what is perceived to be the truth, seem actually like a, a fairly low stakes thing. Right, that it's now ratcheted up to say it's not just going to be you; it's going to be everyone you care about. The Soviets didn't do that, you know. There's a a, a guy here in D.C., John Utley, who is uh, the son of a, a Russian man who was killed by the Soviets. His father was taken off and sent to a gulag, uh, where only decades later did John find out that that he was killed there, that he died there, um, you know. But John, who was a child at the time that his father was taken, escaped Soviet Russia with his mother, Frida, and, and Frida Utley became one of the most important anti-communist activists in the 20th century. Um, Lost Illusions is a book she wrote, uh, the foreword by Bertrand Russell, on her sort of awakening from communism, because she and her husband were sort of loyal Soviets um, initially, before kind of realizing the scale of the threat but Frida was able to escape with her son, John. Right. That's not possible today in, in uh, communist China. Far, far less possible. And I want your listeners, many of whom are Christians, to envision this. You get a low social credit score. It's like you were a leper in biblical times, unclean. Because people who know you and know if you have a, social, a low social credit score know that if they even talk to you, they will get a low social credit score. So imagine, you, we all know what the, leper, the, the plight of lepers back in the biblical times, they couldn't even associate with anyone. And it was the same thing if you were kicked out of the synagogue in Israel back in those days. You could not associate with anyone because if you did, they would be kicked out of the synagogue. I mean, it's excommunication in, on steroids. Um, I, that's kind of a trite term, but it is. It means you are socially canceled from any participation in society. You're going to have to live on the streets. You're going to have to scrounge for food. And if anybody shows pity on you, shows mercy on you, they'll be right there on the streets with you. The expose of the Chinese social credit system that's, that is being implemented, right, um, is, has been growing. It's been reported in a lot of different places, the scale of it, um, the implications of it, especially if it's adopted globally by other nations or by, why wouldn't it, be? or by nations that are, are Chinese proxies, um, due to trade or other, or any nation that's afraid of their people. That's not that when the government is not legitimate, who are you afraid of the people or any nation that may want to suppress religious uh, expression. And there's been some sort of too clever by half, maybe flippant, maybe just naive reaction in the U.S. that that I've seen, both anecdotally and in and in clear writing and clear responses to some of these pieces, saying, "Look, fine, maybe this is happening. Maybe people are being you know denied housing um, because of their low credit score, social credit score. But you know, the the capitalist, globalized West, we have our own credit scores. We have TransUnion and Experian." And aren't the consequences nearly the same? You know, if your credit score at, at TransUnions is 600, well, it's harder to buy a car. It's harder to get housing. And so they sort of say, they, so they relativize it, right? It's, it's equivalent, isn't uh, any, it? Anybody who thinks it's equivalent uh, doesn't have enough gray matter to think logically. <laughs> uh, Bloomberg reference. The, uh, <laughs> uh, I'm nonpartisan. People in this country, obviously, 
you have to work, you have to do well. If you go bankrupt, as some people do, you might not be able to have as nice a house. You might not be able to buy a car and so forth. You're not being, people are not being told they cannot associate with you. They're not being told they cannot, let's say you're on, out on the street, that they can't show you mercy and bring you into a shelter or bring you into a home. They're not being prevented from going to church. And then with regard to the more brutal stuff, they're not being rounded up, put into a jail and tissue typed and harvested if somebody comes up with enough money to buy their liver. And, and, and um, you're not being prevented, as they are in China, from, from having religious burials. That's just another thing that China is doing. So the idea that there's any kind of equivalent is just sophomoric at best and intellectually lazy and refusing to look evil in the eye. The problem is we've had... We, uh, Auschwitz, 75th anniversary of its liberation was just, uh, I don't like to use the term celebrated, but let's say marked. Noted, marked. Yeah. Um, and the, the call, the proper call, never again, never again went out. But never again can't just apply to anti-Semitism. It has to apply to any kind of brutal human rights, a mass genocide kind of thinking and suppression. And so this is a, a different version of that kind of authoritarianism that really got started um, in the 20th century and is now reaching high-tech proportions, which makes it more effective, as, as you said, about the uh, Soviet gulags. You know, we've talked before, you know, Noah, you've joked about Facebook and, and Mark Zuckerberg and, and sort of the, the downsides of, of our, um, you know, social media culture in the past. But it was striking to me, Wesley, you know, you mentioned actually the witness of Mark Zuckerberg, the CEO of Facebook, on the issue of China, you know, where Zuckerberg uh, has come out and he's explained why Facebook doesn't do business in China. And Zuckerberg says, quote, I wanted our services in China because I believe in connecting the whole world and I thought we might help create a more open society. <laughs> he says, I worked hard to make this happen, but we could never come to an agreement on what it would take for us to operate there and they never let us in. And now we have more freedom to speak out and stand up for the values we believe in and fight for free expression around the world, unquote. And you make the point. Imagine the potential impact if Facebook's example, if Zuckerberg's leadership as CEO were followed by, you know, Google, Boeing, the NBA, Apple. Apple. Apple has most of their devices manufactured in China. So that, you know, I don't expect, you know, people, well, they're going to lose profits. Hmm. If they boycott South Carolina, they're going to lose profits too. Um, but see, it's easy to boycott a relatively small thing. It's, it's much more difficult to put your values into effect when it may actually cost you something substantial. So one thing is to put all our chickens in China's uh, nest, our eggs in China's nest, to be a better metaphor, <laughs> uh, is unwise, but that's beyond the scope of my work. But to say that, you know, we cannot do anything on these egregious human rights cases because we'll lose money is to make us complicit in what's going on. Now, I don't expect, I, if, if these companies and others spoke up, because China's dependent on us too, I don't expect China to become a free and uh, enlightened society. I don't expect the Chinese to say, oh, let's have free elections and we'll step down. But I do think the power would be, because it's happened before, for them to back off, to, for them to stop 
I mean, when the Chinese, when the organ harvesting stuff happened, they went into high PR mode and assured everybody, oh, we've stopped it, even though it wasn't happening. <laughs> right. <laughs> but they didn't. They just got past the moment. And, and, and so I do think that if, if they saw that there was a financial cost to them, because here's the bargain China has made. I actually was in China in 2016. I was stunned at the how well the people were doing in terms of economics. The United States has always said if we have you know, good free economics, that will lead to political freedom. That's been kind of our policy since World War II. China's bet is if we give people decent economic uh, prosperity, they won't care about political freedom. And so that's, a, that's an interesting face-off happening right now with China. Uh, but I think if you threaten, and, and for them to have that work, they have to have prosperity in China. And if you threaten their business profits I think they might very well say, well, because not in terms of morals, but just in terms of utilitarian analyses, well, we better back off on some of this. Otherwise, we may lose half of Apple's manufacturing, and that would be a disaster for us, and we'd have all these unemployed people, and they would then turn on the Communist Party. So we have, I think, more power over them, because theirs is, do we stay in power? To stay in power, we need economic prosperity. Either that or we'll just have to start shooting our people in the streets. Uh, you notice they didn't go into Hong Kong, which they would have liked to have, like they did in Tiananmen Square. And you know why? I think it isn't because they cared about the lives of the people in Hong Kong, because they knew that if they went into Hong Kong, there would be consequences from a business perspective. And I think the same thing should be true in these issues. And we have to not be naive, right? This was the same thing that happened in the 20th century. There were so many Western intellectuals elites of various types, politicians, thinkers, academics, what have you, who were apologists for the Soviet Union. Sure. We've seen, you know, in this election cycle, Still we've are. seen, of course, uh, you know, the, the uh, as late as 1988, incredibly, a year before the collapse of the Soviet Union, Bernie Sanders, uh, you know, is, there's video of him that's been circulating Things around. Great. Talking about how wonderful the Soviet Union People is because they have a youth arts program. And they have chandeliers in their metro yeah, yeah, that's, centers. That's right. Beautiful <laughs> metros. And, uh, but the same thing is happening today. Yeah. Uh, you know, of course, we've seen, um, you know, this was a few years ago, I think, but it's been circulating because he's now uh, a candidate, is Mike Bloomberg. You know, being interviewed, I think, on Firing Line, where he, he makes the comment. He says, you know, well, look, uh, you know, uh, she and, and the Chinese communist... They have constituents to serve, <laughs> yeah. you know. They want to stay He's in power. He's not a dictator. And and you know the the interviewer presses him, and she says, you know, so are you saying that you know there are political parties in China? Are you saying there's some competition? And he sort of evades the question. Um, but again, this is this is truly deadly naivete. Absolutely. And it's it's precisely people like a Bloomberg or like a Zuckerberg who have the potential to help move the needle. And what that's going to mean is decades perhaps longer, of the, of the maintaining of the status quo, of the intentional killing and, and total repression. Well, beyond that, or we a as, move toward an open we society. As a, we as American consumers have power to persuade businesses to act in a certain way as well. Perhaps, and, and the reason I'm writing these articles is I certainly don't expect uh, President Xi to say, oh, Wesley Smith says we're wrong. I think I'll change. <laughs> I, I don't think that's going to happen. Uh, one, and by the way, one of the things they're doing is they're forcing 
uh, church members to learn his sayings. Apparently, they, there's an app where uh, his sayings are on there. They give all their um, uh, government workers tests. You have to know what President Xi had to say, but they're beginning to move it now into private enterprise as well. But we could insist, number one, asking, and I've been doing some agitation around D.C. here uh, to see, as with, with Nina, she and I actually had a meeting together with some people, to see if we could get some Senate hearings going or other hearings going to ask our high-tech robber barons, you know, are, are the people who work for you in China subjected to these kinds of oppressive uh, behaviors? Loyalty tests? Loyalty tests. Uh, do, you, do you control who works for your company or does the government control who works for your company? Uh, are you aware of this organ harvesting? Have you done anything to protest this? And if we could get the, as I said, if we could get the private sector, these big companies that China relies on to steal our technology and to make money uh, pushing back, then I think that then they might at least moderate or some of their worst behaviors. Well, the, but the, the, our robber barons aren't going to do it unless they get pressure. One form of pressure might be from the government saying, hey, what is this? You know, make them have attend hearings. Another would be uh, for the president, I think, to say, hey, you know, I like uh, uh, Apple, but why are you, uh, wh what's going on here? I don't know that, I, I hope the president will do that. But another is for us consumers, or we consumers, tell me the right grammar, um, to say, you know, I expect you people to only do business in places. I don't expect you to pay uh, a worker overseas 40 bucks an hour if you can pay them 10 necessarily, but I do expect you to ensure that you only do business in places where at least a modicum of human rights are respected. And if people come to see this forthright kind of behavior and say this is unacceptable in the modern world, then I think something can happen. Or we can decide, like in the 1930s, gee, this is just not worth us dealing with. Let's go about our lives. I want my, I don't want to pay 600 for my Apple phone. I want to pay 400 for my Apple phone. And then we will be complicit. And we will be going along with the system, even though it doesn't affect us and our families, causes people to be killed, causes people to have their organs harvested, causes Christians to be socially canceled. And I don't know how, I mean, we would be part of that. I mean, you cannot not buy stuff from China. I used to try, and, and you can't. But you doesn't mean you just go, oh, well, that's it. There are things we can do. Each and every, one, each and every person listening to this could write a letter to their uh, senator and House representative and saying, have you looked into this? Well, and to start even simply by acknowledging, as you're saying, we can't extricate ourselves immediately from these economic arrangements Interestingly, I think President Trump's trade war with China is helping deleverage some to some degree. Um, but we can recognize that we're caught in this sort of impossible and unacceptable situation. And starting there to say, you know, do I like my iPhone? Yes. And it is a hypocrisy and a tragedy that I am a part of a system that's implicated me in the death and murder of innocent people, people who do have human rights, right. recognizing that the, the UN's Universal Declaration of Human Rights cannot be a dead letter 
when the rubber meets the road, when it comes down to, do I believe in these ideals? Is there such a thing as an American ideal on human rights? Or are these just words? That's right. And and if all they are is words and we like to make ourselves feel good and virtue project, well, then let's find that out and quit pretending. And acknowledging our power, like you said, Wesley, you know, China, people talk about it, policymakers talk about sort of the leverage and power China has over us. But as you said, we have a lot of power sort of over them when we're talking about economics because they produce a lot of things and we buy a lot of things. And then you have the people like the Zuckerbergs, like the LeBron Jameses, these extremely powerful men, you know, and they kind of made divergent choices with how they approach China. But you look at these other countries in the world that China has influence over with their Belt and Road Initiative, for example, which is this giant infrastructure and sort of development program they have for Africa and the Middle East and other parts of Asia, where they give these countries so much money to build build railroads and It's dams a 21st century Marshall Project. And power plants, no, exactly. No, it's, it's not a Marshall Project. It's a Marshall Project with, with, with the marionette strings attached, right? No, and, it's, it's, it's Lone Shark Project. <laughs> well, he, so for one way or the other, though, I think that the United States and our the powerful people in our country have a lot less credibility in saying, "Oh, we have to deal with China," because a lot of these a lot of these sort of developing nations, though the sort of the loan from China may come with a lot of strings attached and a high interest rate, they're the people offering the loan. So it's like, are, am I going to build the power plant in our city, or am I not? With us, it's more like, are we going to pay? you know, like you said, maybe $600 to the iPhone or $1,000 to the iPhone. So it's the, the, the choices are different. And I think that we have, as the United States, a lot more culpability and responsibility because we have power to actually change things. And there are actually efforts along those lines against Israel. There's the divesting uh, um, movement, and I'm not going to take a position on that. I, I don't support that, so I just took a position. <laughs> <laughs> but But it shows you that there are people who will do those kinds of economic pressures. Uh, back uh, during the apartheid evil of South Africa, there was tremendous economic pressure put on South Africa, and it helped lead to Prompted the you. ending of our apartheid. So it's not like this is known as soft power. What we need is rigorous exercise of soft power against China in the same way others are, are doing, did against uh, South Africa, and some, in my view, misguidedly are doing against Israel. And what we need more than anything else in D.C. is what you're describing, Wesley, encounters with those in positions of power making decisions, but we also need a bipartisan consensus. We need yeah. Democrats and Republicans to recognize each in their own way what are the things we agree on? What is American idealism? Whether you call that, you know, an America first approach or whether you call it, you know, the continuation of globalization, what are we signaling to the world? And we need both the shrewdness of, of the sort of Marshall Project, Marshall Plan mentality that, that does say we're going to continue to help invest in economic development globally because we know the consequences. You know, we can't just bemoan something like Huawei in Britain. We've got to provide alternatives at the same time, we've also got to stand up actually for the moral and ethical principles. You've written about this, Wesley, to shift gears a bit recently in National Review that the, the, the kind of communist Chinese problem has to be made a campaign issue. Yes, this is the time to do it. And uh, I, I, I wrote this piece in National Review after the last uh, Democrat debate, which would have been, I, I don't remember the exact date, but let's just say in Bloomberg's first appearance in Las Vegas. And I was stunned and, and upset that none of the moderators brought any of this up 
to the candidates. And none of the candidates brought that up in themselves or to each other. It's the great unmentioned human rights abuse uh, of our times. I've seen other other foreign policy issues brought up, other trade policy issues. In fact, China was raised in that debate uh, in terms of um, climate change and in terms of trade, but not in terms of this. So I really um, fault uh, our media, uh, who a don't cover this enough, nearly enough. I mean, if it was a uh, if it was something that would um, harm a conservative, I think they would cover it more. I hate to tell you what I think, but I think media is biased quite a bit. But that they wouldn't bring this up in a question to president, perhaps the next president of the United States, and I think it should be brought up uh, to Donald Trump too. Uh, I mean, I was really happy Laura Ingram asked him that question when she interviewed him, and I was very unhappy at his punt. And we can't just say be, uh, because uh, many pro-lifers support Donald Trump, well, we're going to give him a pass. That's not how this should work. Here, here's what it makes me think of, Wesley. I think you make such a good point because politicians on the right, they don't want to attack China because of economic reasons, right? And politicians on the left don't want to attack China because they have this moral equivalence problem and they don't think that America deserves leadership. Yes. <laughs> I should have said that. <laughs> No, it's a, it's a continuing issue, and we're going to continue to follow. I appreciate, Wesley, that you're really one of the only voices speaking about this consistently with clarity and with conviction. That's, I think, the thing that we're recognizing uh, as, as distinctive, as rare in this moment, is that there are so few people in our politics that actually seem convicted, right, in a good way, in a moral and ethical way, about the issues they're talking about, that they aren't just words, that there's yeah. some truth behind it. And And... Let's be a little generous. It's human nature. I mean, if you take a look at the slavery issue, how long we tried to punt on that, to use the modern term, and how they, how this country's desperately strived not to actually finally come to grips with one of the great evils of human history. And when they did, because they waited too long and nobody would, you know, acquiesce in terms of, of uh, policy, we ended up with 700,000 dead Americans uh, in a terrible civil war. Now, that's not going to happen now. Uh, but if we permit this kind of brutality to go unremarked, we have betrayed our own heritage. And I, I hope that um, whether one, whatever one believes in terms of the abortion issue, and you look at what China did on that issue with the one-child policy and so forth. When I was in China, uh, the, I was stunned because the guide said that when the— uh, uh, the one-child policy came into being. He had already been born, and his mother was six months pregnant and was forced to get an abortion. Mm -hmm. And everybody on that bus, we were as we listened, our jaws hit the floor. And now, because China has uh, was decided from central control that they needed to limit population, and by the way, they didn't cut their population; they barely slowed its rate of growth. Now they've got a demographic problem where there are so many more males and females that they are facing uh, social disruption. So, Because of sex-selective abortion, a yeah. practice that is legal in almost every state in our country. And you had female infanticide because if you're only going to have one child in that culture, you tended to want a boy. This same, So pro-lifers cared a lot about that. They need to care about this too. You know, there's a, there's a canard, a lie against pro-lifers. 
And that is that pro-lifers care about people before they're born, but not after. This is a case about dealing with brutal repression and uh, anti-life attitudes after birth. And I think the pro-life movement should get on board on this and start pushing uh, people, politicians who are in their constituencies to take a stand. And of course, we know that's a canard because the whole reason that we would want to be concerned with a human being before they're born is because we want them to be born and to thrive and to flourish in life. <laughs> you, know, you know, it's a, a full spectrum issue. And You're this being logical. Us, You're being logical. This, this brings us to, you know, another area of your writing, Wesley. Uh, you've written recently on assisted suicide protections, quote unquote, becoming barriers, quote unquote. You know, the issue of, of suicide, suicide by physician, uh, which is promoted uh, by groups like Death with Dignity, they call themselves, um, is an issue of increasing importance. Well, you're seeing euthanasia, assisted suicide advocacy throughout the West. And the way it's sold is it's going to be just a rarely applied program when nothing else can be done to alleviate suffering. And we're going to have these very strong protective guidelines to protect against abuse and and to make sure that people who shouldn't have it don't get it and so forth. We want it to be safe, legal, and rare. That's right. So, yeah. <laughs> so, so the uh, problem is that once you accept legalization of assisted suicide, you've changed your mindset. You basically said that killing is an acceptable answer to human suffering. And then those very guidelines that are protect are promoted as protections suddenly become obstacles or hurdles that keep people from being relieved of their suffering. And you see, that's why you see the, uh, the bleeding, and this is probably the subject of another show, but you see the complete collapse of all protections in any society that accepts euthanasia where the society general, the culture generally, the population generally supports it. Netherlands, Canada. Canada is just a terrible disaster. Uh, Belgium. Uh, the supposed restrictions bleed out. And I'll just give you one example. In the Netherlands, they now allow uh, people with dementia to sign an advanced directive saying, when I reach a certain level of incapacity, please kill me. Uh, so uh, a woman was uh, diagnosed with dementia. She said, I think it was even orally, not in writing, I want to be killed when I reach a certain level, but I want to be the one to decide. I'll tell you when. She never did. So eventually the family and the doctor decided, well, she hasn't said anything. We're going to do it anyway. Uh, the doctor came to the woman's nursing home, drugged her coffee so she would sleep, and then with the intent to lethally inject her. The woman woke up, found out she was being lethally injected, and fought to live, struggled against it. The doctor said, hold her down to her family. The family held her down where she and she was euthanized. That's murder. And yet, when the case first came to light, the euthanasia authority said, oh, she had the best interests of the patient in heart. We won't do anything. There was such an international human cry that the doctor was actually prosecuted, not that they were ever going to do anything to her, even if she was found guilty. But the judge found her not guilty and praised her for acting in the best interests of her patient. Because even the idea of consent in the Netherlands is beginning to erode because the idea is he's, she's suffering, 
let's put her out of our misery is really basically what happens. And so the idea that, that protections are going to stay protections is naive. They are going to be seen as obstacles to be overcome and eventually dismantled. And this is not a slippery slope argument. This is facts on the ground argument. It's happening, yeah. And we see this, you know, the lethal injection issue, particularly in European nations, uh, and I think in Canada now too, right? Yes. You know, this is this is the most sort of, I think, vivid and and kind of stark, frightening version of suicide and euthanasia that you can imagine. This is Nazism. I mean, the Nazis did things like this, lethal injection killings. Uh, and now in the 21st century, you know, it's, this is the common thing. We, we say things like, you know, it's 2020. Why can't people realize X, Y, or Z? You know, well, it's 2020. Why can't people realize that facilitating access to suicide doesn't mean that we're expanding the scope of freedom? You know, this is not a blessing of liberty. This is fatal social indifference to vulnerable persons. Yeah. An example of this, you know, these, these protections that you say, Wesley, that are now being called barriers once suicide becomes an option, once the law takes the stance, the posture of saying, well, we're sort of indifferent. You know, it's like the George Bailey syndrome. Would the world be better with or without you? And today our response is, well, who are we to say? You know, um, reflection periods, commonly called waiting periods, are being attacked. This relates to the abortion issue and it relates to the suicide issue. Reflection periods, what are they? They're an important time period where when you go in to be uh, counseled or to, to ask about a particular medical procedure or any kind of procedure, there's a window of time that's created precisely so that you can reflect on the merits, the consequences, the potential risks of whatever you're going to do. This exists for something like, you know, LASIK corrective eye surgery. But when it comes to suicide, it's presented as this horrendous barrier. Now, can you imagine your 15-year-old son struggling with depression, struggling with questions of self-worth, like many teenagers do, like many young men do in America? We know that the greatest population affected by suicide today is young men in America. Imagine your 15-year-old son goes to a doctor in a state that doesn't require parental consent because that's a barrier, sees somebody without you knowing about it, is given pills for a fatal overdose, no different in practice than opioid abuse, than a death uh, accidental by opioids in, say, West Virginia, gets the pills, comes home that day, takes them, and is dead. You find him in the living room. No barriers, quote-unquote, also no protections. How might things have changed if there were parental consent requirements? How might things have changed if there was a reflection period, even a few days, even a day? Yeah, well, in your example, we have to say that currently in the United States, depressed teenagers do not get assisted suicide. So let's be clear on that, but that doesn't mean that will always be the case. And they do in other parts of the world, right? Um, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Uh, they have to be ill still, but but you're moving in that uh, that direction. You and have the reason I mention this, Wesley, is because for the same reason that we talk about phrases like uh, terminal conditions, where terminal 
as historically understood, classically defined, terminal means that you're dying and near death. But increasingly, that's not the case. Well, yeah, and let's get out of the teenage thing. Let's get into uh, the uh, cases in, in Belgium, which are documented, of geriatric joint euthanasia cases, even of elderly couples who are not sick, but fear future widowhood. That occurred in Belgium for sure. And the, the, the death doctor, as I call them, who, who killed this couple was procured by the couple's son because the couple's son told the Daily Mail, well, this is the best because we would not have been able to care for our parents. Well, I guess. again, you put them out of your own misery. Mm. Um, it's best for them because we would have treated them poorly. That's correct. Very good. And, in, and, and the reason I bring up Canada, people, when I bring things up like, oh, look at that case in Belgium, the pro-euthanasia types or assisted suicide types will say, well, we're not Belgium. We're not the Netherlands. Canada is our closest cultural cousin. In fact, if we hadn't lost the Battle of Quebec, they might be part <laughs> of the United States. And in Canada, they uh, the Supreme Court legalized through a court ruling um, a Roe v. Wade type, only worse, ruling uh, legalized euthanasia across Canada and actually made it a positive right, not just mere legalization, but a positive right they to said, access. This is good. And that people who have been uh, diagnosed with a medical condition that causes irremediable suffering, as defined by the patient, meaning if there's a way to alleviate that suffering but the patient doesn't want it, including psychological pain, that patient is entitled to be euthanized. That's that's the state of the Supreme Court ruling. Um, then the the I won't we don't have time to get into the whole thing, but the the euthanasia was legalized across the country. Death is supposed to be foreseeable, which is very weak. And already in Canada, after just a couple of years, they are already very seriously looking at expanding euthanasia to people with dementia diagnoses, even though they're not death isn't foreseeable soon. And they're talking about pediatric euthanasia. And in fact, if people want to find one of my articles, there was a, a, um, an, a medical journal article written by pediatricians from a Toronto area children's hospital that said not only had pediatricians at that hospital volunteered to kill children who were sick, but that they supported the idea of children being able to be killed without parental consent if they were, quote, mature minors. So in Canada, a mature minor can consent to certain procedures. And now they're going to say if they legalize it for children, they're going to be able to consent to be killed. So imagine this is kind of getting to the example you gave, uh, which was a little um, down the road in the United States. But in Canada, imagine three years from now, two years from now, where pediatric euthanasia has been approved and is deemed just another medical uh, treatment, quote-unquote. And they already have the doctrine of mature minors being able to consent to medical treatment. You go see your son, say, I'll see you tomorrow. The son has instructed the doctors, you cannot tell my parents I'm planning to be euthanized, and they have the obligation to keep that private. And then uh, you go back the next day and you find out your son has been killed by doctors at his own request. And, the, and this medical journal article, I'm not making this up. I mean, I didn't think of this illustration. Basically said they believe that mature minors should be allowed access to what they call medical aid in dying, which is been, has been transformed from homicide into a medical treatment. 
There's already been in, in Canada a depressed person who was not foreseeable death euthanized. The family found out about it, begged the doctors not to kill him, and they killed him anyway. His for his own best interest. Because he was depressed and he asked for it. So the idea that guidelines will, be, will, be, will stay in place is ludicrous and naive. They're there to give a false sense of assurance that all is under control. They're really not there to last forever because we are moving toward a death-on-demand kind of culture other than for transitory issues. And by the way, it's not choice. It's the end of all choices. We talk at Americans United for Life about the importance of incrementalism. In other words, the importance of an incremental step-by-step strategy to protect human life in a coherent and comprehensive way. You know, making the point that you look at something like Roe v. Wade, Roe and lawful abortion, lawful killing of some of the most vulnerable among us didn't come out of nowhere. It wasn't, you know, kind of pulled from the sky in, in the early 1970s. It had a decades-long pedigree whose origins, as, as Justice Clarence Thomas illustrates in uh, one of his recent opinions where he outlines the history of this, its origins were in eugenics, uh, even amongst American elites at the turn of the 20th century, um, embodied in places like Nazi Germany, but championed in the United States by eugenic people like Margaret Sanger and others who advanced this thinking, created organizations like the Guttmacher Institute precisely to relativize the value of human life. And so, you know, Roe v. Wade, abortion, didn't come out of nowhere. They came out of a decades-long movement to change American thinking on the value of human life. It's, it's a tragedy, actually, that you go from 1948, this, this moment where people are kind of flush with confidence off of the victory over a totalitarian global system, recognize correctly that there is such a thing as human rights and that we can have a universal declaration of our aspiration to protect equal human dignity uh, and the innate and inalienable rights of all members of the human family to, you know, 20 some years later saying, well, actually, never mind. Uh, we can kill uh, as we want. We're just going to do it in maybe a more sanitized way. You know, Pope Francis has called. Uh, abortion, Nazism with white gloves. And we look across the other end of the spectrum at the suicide and euthanasia issue, and we say it's the same thing. And these are not medical procedures, okay? This is the important thing. Across the spectrum of issues, whether abortion and especially with suicide and euthanasia, the reason more than anything else that this is contentious in law is because what law is doing is inserting politics into medicine to warp it, to manipulate it, to create a new norm that is external to the practice of medicine. Forcing somebody wearing a white coat or with white gloves in medicine to kill is not a medical act. It's not curative. It's not healing. So it's not medicine, even though it's being called that. It's politics or worse. Ideology. It's ideology. Um, <laughs> that gets us to the medical conscience issue, which is just too long to get into. But um, there's an irony here. Uh, back when uh, abortion was being politically contested and I wasn't involved, I was going to law school in those days, um, people who were against legalizing abortion said, well, you know, if you do this, it's going to lead to euthanasia and assisted suicide. 
and the supporters of abortion said that would never happen. You're well, crazy. And now supporters of assisted suicide say, well, if you support the woman's right to choose in an abortion, you have to also support the person's yeah, right on, to choose in assisted right. suicide. Because there's certain logic, you know, human beings are a logical species. We're exceptional in this way. Once we accept a premise, we're going to take it where it leads. We want patterns and rhymes. And, and, and there's consistency. I mean, you ju- it just it doesn't happen all at once, but it, it moves you along. So um, I think really it's crucial. And, and you see, honestly, pro-lifers are not as emotionally invested in stopping assisted suicide as they are abortion. I'm sorry, that's my observation over more than 20 years of advocacy on the assisted suicide issue. Not that they're for it, but they don't put the energy into opposing it that they do abortion, and I think that's a big mistake. I think, uh, Noah, maybe we've got to get uh, Wesley J. Smith and Alexandra DeSanctis together here for a cage match. They would be good, yeah. Alexandra, you know, we brought that up on a recent podcast with her, and she said, yeah, I agree with that, and I think that the focus should rightly be on abortion because it's oh. it's more important issue, or more, well, more prevalent, I think she would say. Well, she can think that, but you know, I think that we'll sort uh, that you, out if later. You're, yeah, if you're <laughs> pro-life, that gives you a broad jurisdiction, and it's and it's actually your portfolio is growing continually. And I want to make that point too, just in the same way that that killing is not medicine; it's ideology. Um, recognizing human rights does not mean that you are just sort of narrowly pro-life in a political kind of organizing movement sense, right? Pro-life can often mean just sort of that, that you're a sort of a faction within a larger political um, zone of issues. Recognizing human rights means that you have a moral and ethical intuition, at least, about who we are, what we're owed, what we owe to one another, and what life is for. So when we're dealing with these issues and trying to recognize, like, is the forced killing of an elderly woman by lethal injection being held down and killed. Is that a medical issue? You know, and if we can get to the point of recognizing, you know, it doesn't sound like medicine to me, then we're exercising ethical and moral judgment. And that's the first step toward recognizing it. It's not just about politics. It's not just about pro-life or pro-choice. It's not even just about medicine. It's about human rights. Right. And this is a, 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 broadcast or podcast that goes out to pro-lifers primarily, um, you may have friends who uh, won't listen about abortion because that, you know, that tears this country apart now, but they might still listen on assisted suicide. And That's a great point. I've known people who have come out, oh, we shouldn't allow this assisted suicide. And once you've got them to accept that premise, you never know. Uh, they might decide another premise they might just go with a logical sense. But it shouldn't matter. You shouldn't say you have to agree with everything a pro-lifer does uh, or, or in, in order to, to oppose assisted suicide. Because many people, if you say either if you oppose assisted suicide, you also have to oppose abortion, they'll say, well, then I'm not going to oppose assisted suicide. And if you do that, then you're actually furthering the cause of death and not the cause of life. We're looking for addition, not subtraction, right? Yeah. You, if you're a pro-lifer, your job is to let people, wherever they can, find that ethic. Unity and yeah. expansion. And, and, um, and it also doesn't matter on religion. One of the great pro-lifers of my lifetime was my friend, the late Nat Hentoff, who was an atheist 
and yet was a very prominent abortion supporter and an assisted suicide opponent. However, you also can look at the disability rights groups who really fight against assisted suicide but are not pro-life on abortion. That doesn't mean you shouldn't work with the disability rights groups if you're pro-life or on abortion. Right, and and Hentoff was anti-abortion for clarity. I mean, he had professional consequences from that. Right. He was anti-abortion, anti-assisted suicide. He was anti-experimenting um, on babies born with spina bifida. He was anti-feudal care theory. He and I became friends because we were both working on the same issues. He, became, he was named by the Human Life Foundation a great defender of life. Uh, I think it was 2005. I'm not sure the year. And, and I was very honored because he asked me to introduce him at that event. Yeah, Hentoff was, was a great. I grew up reading his columns. Great man. And he lost his job at the Village Voice. He was hard left wing and a very civil libertarian. And he gave up his, his uh, ACLU card precisely because the ACLU supported uh, Roe v. Wade. And he, so he ripped up his ACLU card. This is human rights. It's universal human equality. Uh, and and um, so the, these issues that we're talking about later in the broadcast are also germane to the China horrors that we dealt with in the first part of the broadcast. Do we treat human beings as objects or do we treat human beings as subjects? They must always be subjects. And so just as you wouldn't, uh, uh, your pro-lifers would say, you know, that child, that baby in the, in the womb is a subject, you also have to look at the Uyghur in Western China being subjected to terrible persecution as a subject and I say care Equally, that doesn't reduce the care for the unborn child, but it says you're going to expand your heart, expand your areas of concern, and not categorize and say, okay, this matters more than another aspect because it doesn't. You know, we're sitting here around the table at Americans United for Life, just a few blocks from the White House. We're in downtown Washington, but we want these conversations to happen at every table in America, at kitchen table, dinner table living room, wherever you find yourself, with friends, with family. You know, it's that old idea of Justice Brandeis, right, uh, that sunlight is the best disinfectant. Uh, so being able to speak about these issues openly, in the sun, so to speak, does so much to advance the cause of, of ethical well, and moral how, goodness. Yeah, well, that's how uh, attitudes and, and uh, public mores are created. It isn't Wesley Smith speaking on a podcast, oh, Wesley says this, I'm going to follow. It's does Wesley. That's how I feel, but (laughs) (laughs) Wesley versus uh, Xi Jinping, right? But yeah, that's right. She's, he's going to change his mind. But when people learn about this, then there are opportunities in all of our lives where things you can speak. Example, you're walking down the street with a friend and somebody, this is taking us back. I use this example. Somebody would see a person across the street in a wheelchair and they might say, gee, if I were like that, I'd want to go to Kevorkian. I'd want assisted suicide. Well, that opens a tremendous opportunity. First, you say, well, wait a second. No one is Kevorkian bait. No one should be abandoned to assisted suicide. What we need to do is make sure that that disabled person, by the way, who across the street might be perfectly happy and probably is, as the disability rights folk will tell you, the, the people who are least happy about people with disabilities are people who are not with disabilities, they call us tabs, temporarily able-bodied. <laughs> <laughs> so, and, and so you'll see people without disabilities who say, oh, that's got to be a terrible way to live. I would want to die if I were like that, without realizing that if 
we without realizing what you're saying. Yeah, first of all. and yeah. someone when if you become uh, if you have a disabling condition, of course it requires loving and commitment and adjustment and and people caring about you. But studies have shown even somebody who becomes quadriplegic, you know, after when the, the diagnosis first hits, it's devastating. But five years later, the levels of depression among quadriplegics is no real different than it is among able-bodied people. And disabled people in the disability rights community, it drives them nuts. You're saying our lives are not worth living. How dare you say that? And don't tell us that you know we have a right to die until you make sure that we have every opportunity to make the most of our own lives. All right, Wesley. So as a refresher, every show on Life, Liberty, and Law, we do our shot of gratitude. We just share something that we're grateful for. We've gotten into so many important issues today, but you know what people aren't seeing is that we actually like each other. We're having a good time here. Things are a little bit lighthearted. You know? They're not as heavy as they seem. Wesley, what's your shot of gratitude? That I'm in good health. Well put. <laughs> That's a good one. Noah, how about you? What's your shot of gratitude? You know, Tom, I'm thankful that we can find sort of value and happiness in our lives and things that aren't just inside ourselves. I think that uh, culture tells us today that, you know, you have to find your happiness inside yourself and you have to find your worth inside find your yourself. passion. And I don't really think that's true at all. And I, I find almost all of my happiness and value through my faith and my relationships and my community. And so, uh, you know, I challenge everyone to, to look outside yourself and to try to try to find find things that can give you passion and happiness and value. How about you, Tom? What are you grateful for? That's awesome, Noah. Thank you. Yeah, I'm thinking, you know, as we talked throughout the program, but especially as we came to a close here, you know, there's a, a book that I was reminded of. Uh, a guy Thomas Reynolds wrote a number of years ago. It's called Vulnerable Communion, A Theology of Disability and Hospitality. Uh, and Reynolds makes, I, I like it because he makes actually a, a kind of a provocative point that disability properly understood is actually the norm. Um, you know, he says, uh, quote, disabled and non-disabled people do not count as two mutually exclusive categories of human beings. All people are linked indissolubly, sharing the same fundamental condition, which is vulnerable personhood. Absolutely. And, and, you know, a lot of people say, well, I wouldn't want to be a burden. We need to reflect on how is it that we have come to make people who are elderly or people with disabilities or whatever feel like they are burdens. That's on us. And secondly, um, people who do need care are actually giving a great gift because they, if they receive care with gratitude and graciousness, they are allowing people to plant seeds of selfless love. And that's to me, uh, one of the most important things that can be done. So if, you know, I'm not in that situation, but if I ever am, my great hope for myself is that when I need help, that I receive it, I am grateful for it, and I, and I don't hate myself for, for needing it, and I don't resent the person who's giving me the care because that person is uh, planting seeds that hopefully will come to fruit in his or her own life. Right. And that's the point, right? Is that we all share that vulnerable personhood. I mean, I think about this every day. That's what I'm grateful for is recognizing that I share in that vulnerability as a human being with, with you, Wesley and Noah, uh, but with everyone in the human family, we share that. And, and you know, nobody, no matter how able-bodied or strong or rich you are, can do life alone. You know, and that some people it might look like are, are requiring more sort of direct help or care from other people. But everyone requires some help and care from other people. 
And in vulnerability, we find our strength as well, too, because you remember the, the image that the communist Chinese censor in China, that, that heroic man standing up against the tanks at Tiananmen Square, he shared in that vulnerable personhood with us, and he showed us the power uh, of vulnerability and the courage of being vulnerable, even amidst impossible odds. Uh, and we can partake in that in our own way, even if it's not great political witness, um, but just in the sort of day-to-day encounter and hospitality that, that you guys are mentioning. So, Wesley, thanks so much for joining us again on the program. Oh, thanks for having me, Tom, and no, I appreciate it. Thanks, Wesley. All right, if you enjoyed today's episode, be sure to rate us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you're listening. Rate the show, leave a review, and share this episode uh, on your social media and with others who might care about these issues. We need to speak to hearts. We need to change perspectives and inform consciences. If you have any comments, questions, suggestions, whatever, email us at life at I'm Tom Shakely. Thanks for listening to Life, Liberty, and Law.